Luke chapter 12. So I'll give you just a couple of seconds to get there if you want to read along. Um, Luke chapter 12 from verse 16. Luke 12 verse 16. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you've plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich towards God. And we'll skip down to verse 32 of the same chapter and we read, Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourself that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And our second reading is from continuing in the book of James. And we're up to chapter 4, reading from verse 13. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You've hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You've lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You've fattened yourself in the day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray as Pete comes up to give us the sermon uh, and also just remind you that there will be a Q&A afterwards. Um, if Pete's number is not already in the chat, it will be, so you'll be able to send through any questions to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we um, thank you for your word and uh, goodness, thank you for the challenge of this passage that we would seek to follow you more and more in humble submission and be generous with all that you give us. Lord, I pray for Pete as he brings us your word that he would speak through the power of your spirit and you would give us ears to hear. Amen. 
1983, this may be too long for many of us to remember, uh, David Copperfield made the Statue of Liberty disappear. He did it on live television with millions watching from around the globe uh, and with a couple of dozen people in person. Uh, you can watch the video on YouTube and even today it's pretty amazing. This, uh, the sheet goes up in front of the statue and then there's a few moments of theatrics and then down comes a sheet and Lady Liberty is vanished. Now, imagine you're there in the audience, okay? Now, you're a modern, rational human being, and you know that David Copperfield is not a wizard. Or is he? <laughs> Maybe there's a little part of you thinking, did he really just do that? Is he actually magic? I mean, the evidence of your eyes suggests that something pretty amazing has happened. It's the strange thing about humans, isn't it, that we're quite good actually at convincing ourselves that things are true even though we really know they're not. When it suits us, we happily accept illusion as reality. And our passage in James here is all about that kind of illusion. James uh, points out three things that we would say under most circumstances aren't true all the while living as if they are, okay? Uh, and those three things are, number one, we can control our futures. Number two, wealth is the means by which we can gain control. And number three, there are no victims in our pursuit of control. Okay, we'll put it another way. Three illusions, the illusion of control, the illusion of wealth, and the illusion of innocence. James is going to expose each of these and show us how dangerous they are to our spiritual health and how they stop us living lives of generous justice. But we'll also see, actually, how the gospel of Jesus Christ can help us walk in the truth and resist the allure of illusions. Okay, so let's dive in with number one, the first illusion, the illusion of control. Now, for as long as we have had history, humans have done all they can to prepare for the future. And the Bible, actually, if we look at it, tells us this is a really good, not just a good thing, actually, but a wise and, and godly thing. Um, Ecclesiastes 11 verse 1 says, Ship your grain across the sea, and after many days you may receive a return. Invest in seven ventures. No, not seven, eight. Because you do not know what disaster may come upon the land. So God has given us the responsibility to employ wisdom to prepare for unforeseen eventualities. But preparation has looked quite different in different Times. In biblical times, people lived under the constant threat of danger from marauding invaders or floods, fire, locust hordes, you name it. And people knew that no matter how well they prepared, no one can prepare that well. They lived lives and they knew it, um, that they knew were quite vulnerable. I think things have changed quite considerably 
since then. In the modern developed world, widespread prosperity and technological advancement has made people believe to a much greater extent that they can be prepared for almost anything. Now, of course, we know that unexpected things can happen. If nothing else, COVID-19 has taught us that. But deep down, I think we expect a level of protection against most things. Put it, put it another way, we believe that we can maintain a high level of control. We can control our finances. We can control our work outcomes. We can even control our relationships. Now, do you know how ancient people tried to do that? Well, every day they would go to a temple uh, and they would sacrifice to a god like Zeus or Aphrodite or Apollos um, in order that that particular god would maybe have favour and grant them fortune. But they couldn't know for sure because the gods were famously capricious. But it was always worth a shot. Now, modern people are done with that kind of superstition, right? Well, I'm not so sure, actually. Uh, most Melburnians, true, aren't part of the cult of Zeus, although I'd love to meet one if they're out there. That'd be great. Uh, but I think we certainly believe that making the right sacrifices will guarantee us success. Expend enough hard work, smart moves, sex appeal, financial power, and we can gain favour for ourselves. Uh, just like the ancient people, we present our sacrifices and we trust and pray that they are worthy enough to bring us favour. I think that's most people in the Western world. Now, what about Christians, though? Well, no, we don't get a free pass at all. For one thing, it's very easy to treat the God of the Bible a bit like an ancient pagan God, using uh, a sacrifice of obedience, in this sense, to curry favour. And I've heard Christians say it almost just like this. I've lived a good life, I've gone to church, I've prayed, so why won't God give me what I want? God is like a genie, rub his lamp you know, the right way and you get your wishes. And of course, even Christians with a more mature grasp on the faith are still swim in the waters of modern culture. And so that means that we can all very easily fall into the belief that apart from God, we can control our lives. So into this whole thing comes James. And in case anyone hearing his letter thus far has fallen asleep, he says, listen up. Verse 13, now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow, we'll go to this or that city, spend a year, carry on business, make money. <laughs> Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Now, considering this was written in the first century, it's disturbing how much it seems to capture the spirit of our age. We think, tomorrow I'll get up and go to this or this place. Maybe move city, maybe move country, maybe move up in the world. 
but I'll keep making money and I'll keep being successful and things will generally go well for me. Well, we would do those things except for the fact that we're in lockdown. But once we get to COVID normal, then we'll be back to business as usual. (laughs) Or James would say to us, as he did then, what foolishness. Does one pandemic mean there won't be another one? Does one disaster mean that there won't be another one around the corner? You don't know what will happen and you can't prepare for everything. Now let's be clear, uh, James is not saying don't prepare or don't be wise or don't save or don't make plans. He's not advocating resigning yourself to catastrophe and feeling paranoid and stuck. No, so what is he saying? Or verse 15, instead you ought to say, If it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good that they do, that they ought to do, and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. James pinpoints our wicked self-reliance, an attitude which says, I am in control. He says, don't boast in your ability to control your life. Don't boast to others by dropping hints about your security. And just as importantly, don't boast to yourself because often it's the inner voice of pride which says, I am okay because of what I have. That is the clearest symptom of self-reliance. Don't boast in those things because you may be, end up looking the fool when the unexpected happens. So James makes the alternative clear. We are not the lords of history, so let's rest in the one who is. God and only God rules over past, present and future. And so about all our plans, we ought to say, if the Lord wills. Now, uh, that could be seen in a very um, literal way by literally saying God willing all the time and and lots of us do actually but it can just become a byword that we just say which doesn't really mean anything. it's, It's not worth it if it's just words unless it springs from an inner attitude of the heart. If the Lord wills is actually a prayer. It's a prayer that our plans would align with God's plans. In fact, it's a prayer at the heart of the prayer that Jesus himself taught us to pray, the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, hallowed, you know, in, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If the Lord allows our plans, it's because in his sovereign control, it will be part of his plans to bring good to the world even good through the bad. So James doesn't mince words. To believe in a God who is sovereign and good and yet to live in a way which ignores that reality by doing your own thing is sin. It is dishonouring to God and as we are made in his image, less than fitting for human beings. Control over life is an illusion that needs to shatter. 
But the second illusion that we're going to talk about is an even tougher nut to break, the illusion of wealth. In the next few verses, um, starting particularly in chapter 5, James's tone becomes even more hard-edged. And he begins to address specifically a class of ancient people um, called uh, wealthy landowners, people who owned a large amount of land and uh, were agriculturalists and so they were harvested by others. Uh, James's critique against these people is threefold. Number one, they have hoarded their wealth. They have exploited the poor, number two. And number three, they have indulged in extravagance. And there is a single thread tying this to the previous point. The most obvious way someone might seek to control their lives is through the acquisition of wealth. Because wealth means power. And power means control. This is utter foolishness, says James. Because like control, wealth is an illusion. Not in the sense that money doesn't exist, no, but in the sense that money can really buy you any real measure of security. What was certainly the case for the wealthy of James's age is the case for us in our age. But the rich of our time not just the billionaires, not just the the 1% of the 1% actually. No, from a global perspective, we are all the rich. And that's not to say that we all feel rich. I think in Melbourne, um, we have our fair share of economic disparity. And so even people rich by global standards might feel quite poor in the context of our society. But for most of us here, listening to this, I think we are the rich. And with that wealth comes the temptation to find security in the accumulation of it. Money is a thing that we most readily and obviously sacrifice at all sorts of altars to buy security. And so naturally the more money, the more security. And the more security, the more chance we have to indulge. James's warning is dire. He says, what we all know to be true, but would like to believe it isn't. That wealth is no antidote to misfortune. In fact, it is lost far more easily than it is gained. And knowing this doesn't bring real security. Even if we have the wealth with us, it doesn't bring us security because it creates a new set of anxieties and paranoias that it all might be taken away from us. What wealth ultimately buys is not control, but misery. Now, there's lots we could say about luxury too, and that could fill a whole another sermon. But suffice to say that money neither buys happiness nor buys the things that bring happiness. It was not for nothing that Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. And his point was that there is something about wealth that acts as a magnet pulling people away from God. And it's all linked to a basic human need, the need to feel safe. Wealth offers a chance to make yourself safe without any need to entrust yourself to God. Wealth, by its very nature, leads to self-reliance, self-confidence, 
from self-absorption. In other words, the power that wealth brings whispers the same thing that the serpent did to Eve in the Garden of Eden, all the way back at the beginning of the Bible. A lie we all want to believe. It will make you like God's. This is true, I think, for people investigating the Christian faith. It's why in one of Jesus' parables um, about that very thing, uh, the parable of the four seeds, he has a category for people who hear God's word, they, they hear the gospel and they begin to understand it, but ultimately don't continue in it. And he says it's because the worries of this life and, wait for it, the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word out of them. The core message of Jesus is that you have to place your trust in him, find your security in him, find your safety in him. And that means not finding those things in ourselves. And by nature, we rebel against that idea. Again, James doesn't mince words. He says, in the end, all your treasures will do for you is stand as evidence against you on the day of judgment that you've squandered your life and cut yourself off from a trust in God. But it's also true for Christians. It would be right, I think, to say that the biggest obstacle to our discipleship are are learning to follow Jesus in all of life. In this place, in this age, is our great wealth. Because making it and maintaining it will suck up your time, your energy, your headspace, leaving little left to love God and neighbor. The worship of wealth will leave you spiritually immature and ineffective. You will not be the kind of Christian that you would actually really want to be. And like the rich man in, uh, who approached Jesus, you'll just feel really sad all the time because you won't be willing to sacrifice the things that God would like you to and will ultimately be good for you. Now, some of you might be here thinking, oh, come on, Pete, this is all a bit much. Come on. Like, what's, what, what is the Bible really saying? The Bible saying we've all got to take a vow of poverty and go live in a cave somewhere. You know, we've all got to empty our bank accounts. Is that what you're saying? Well, no, actually. The Bible's way more nuanced than we often think it is. It would be a common assumption to think that it's against wealth and against enjoyment. Actually, neither of those things are true. Uh, in, this, in Nehemiah chapter 9, there's this wonderful song of praise that the people of Israel sing, recounting the time when the Israelites came into the, the promised land of Canaan that God gave them. Uh, and it's a song that, uh, in a particular verse, talks about how much they suddenly enjoyed this life of abundance with houses and land and food and things. And it was just a great time was had by all. The Bible isn't against wealth, actually. It's not against enjoyment. Far from it. It does say, though, that if you are blessed with wealth, then you need access to spiritual power strong enough to resist its temptations, strong enough to keep you from greed and grasping. The next line in that song from Nehemiah frames their attitude towards their prosperity. It says simply, Israel reveled in God's great goodness. See, breaking the illusion of wealth begins with realizing 
that not one cent that you own is actually yours. Every cent, every item, every service that you have access to is a gift of God. You worked for it, yes, and it is yours to enjoy, yes, but you didn't earn it. It's a gift of God's loving grace. It's given to you because the creator of the universe has deemed it a good thing for you to have. And this is easy to say, particularly for a Christian, harder to live. Because the more you have, the more pride in you wants to say, I made this, I earned it, it's mine. What I give God, if anything, will be more like an insurance policy, just in case he cares, or like a bit of tribute to make myself feel okay. If that's what we say, what a lie that is. How easily we stop ourselves becoming who God wants us to be. We want to live free from anxiety, free from stress and worry. We want to not worry about the future. We want to be able to be bold and confidently move ahead regardless of what might happen. So God says to us then, stop finding your security in your stuff. It may make you feel like a God, but it won't make you into one. So what can we practically do to shatter this illusion? Well, there are lots of different ideas being explored in the church at the moment. And people talk about things like limiting their income, working part-time, sharing accommodation with others, consuming far less, and all these things we might consider. But there's probably nothing more clearly biblical and nothing more practically useful than simply becoming exceedingly generous. What did Jesus tell that rich man who wanted to know what it would look like to obey God? He said, go, sell your possessions and give to the poor. The emphasis here is not on selling everything that you've got for every Christian every time, no. It's a simple principle. Nothing loosens the hold of wealth on our lives than the simple act of giving it away. Nothing else says, God, I trust you for my provision. More than that. Nothing else, uh, no, no other practice reduces self-reliance and self-confidence and nothing else gets you building God's kingdom instead of building your own. And nothing else reminds you that everything that you've got has just been given to you and that you're a steward of God's things for a little amount of time. John Dixon, a historian, theologian, points out that in the 12th century, the churches began teaching that theft, thievery, includes withholding your giving to the poor. In other words, they began to assume, and based on their reading of the Bible, that generosity was not an optional extra for the Christian life. Generosity was not something that you can do if you can, when you can, if you feel like it. Generosity, they thought, was a central obligation on the same level as reading the Bible, praying, going to church, meeting with other Christians. And I wonder if our prosperity has pushed giving generosity from the center to the periphery, making it an if I can rather than I absolutely must. 
I think we've got to bring it back. Bring it back to the center. Make it a part of our rhythm to daily, monthly, yearly. Keep asking the question, how can I be more generous? With my time, with my money, with my resources, with my abilities, with everything. Perhaps particularly with our money. (laughs) The illusion of wealth has to break, and not just for our own sakes. In fact, more importantly, for the sake of others. And this is the final illusion, the illusion of innocence. See, as a whole, our culture has come to see progress as a victimless crime. Expansion is good. Expansion is great and must happen at all costs. We need more, bigger, and better things. But most of us are also aware, I think to some extent, particularly in Melbourne, particularly in our part of Melbourne, that the cost is much higher than the price tag. You might have seen the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report came out this week. The news for our world isn't good. It's basically certain that our consumption is driving an environmental catastrophe. And we know that the developed world luxuriates at the expense of the developing world. Most of the goods we consume were hammered, stitched or welded by a low-paid worker somewhere far away. And we know that the greater the distance... uh, between the rich and the poor in our cities, the more likely our government will listen to those who can afford to be the loudest voices. Our illusions have some unintended consequences. We may not be like the wealthy landowners, specifically and directly underpaying our workers in our fields, but indirectly we are contributing to the oppression of the innocent who have not opposed us. This is hard for us to hear and perhaps even harder for us to know what to do about it. As I pointed out in the um, TV show The Good Place, um, the, the world economic systems have become so complicated that it's practically impossible to live a truly ethical life because even seemingly good actions have unintended negative consequences. And so what we do is, most of us, we try and make some good decisions. Shop more ethically, be more aware and informed, vote for leaders who can implement wider change. All good things, and I think essential for Christians. Christians should lead the way in a selfless willingness to buck cultural trends and live in ways that promote goodness and flourishing. But in all these things, there is a real danger to simply replace the illusions of control through wealth with the illusion of righteousness through works. What do I mean? I mean making ourselves feel well through our efforts to live well. In a way, that just shifts the illusion of innocence one step back, that we are innocent if we can simply do better than most others around us. It's not hard to see how that attitude causes people to applaud one set of global neighbours while despising another. It becomes a kind of a new religion, actually, the religion of ethical living. No, I think actually we need our illusion of innocence to be broken down even further than that, even further than simply not doing our best for the world, Um, It needs to go down to the very foundations. We need to open wide the gates of our heart in order to, as James would say, be given more grace. How do we do that? 
well, how did David Copperfield make the Statue of Liberty disappear? I'm sure you've all been wondering through the whole sermon so far. Well, he is very clever. Uh, He didn't move the statue, of course, didn't make it disappear. He moved the audience. Sitting on a rotating platform under the blinding of the lights and the heavy rock music, very subtly they shifted perspective away from the statue so that when the curtain came down, well, the statue was still there, it was just slightly off to their left. (laughs) I think it's actually a great picture of what sin is like. Sin, not just the doing of bad things, uh, but a basic attitude of the heart, an attitude um, which, uh, where our perception of reality has, has been shifted so that we think that we can self-make our own security and control, that we are kings of our own lives, that we are in charge of our destinies. That's what sin does. So the only way to break the illusion is to have someone reveal what is actually true. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus tells this great story of a rich man uh, with, bigger, with big barns that he's building to hold all his stuff. And he learns, uh, unfortunately, that death is no respecter of a bank balance. And it's fascinating what Jesus gives as the punchline. He says, this is how it will be for whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich towards He says, if you're rich, don't you dare hoard it for yourself. Be rich towards God. Remember who truly owns your wealth and offer it back to him. This can't just be something that we do on the outside. It has to be something that we believe on the inside. This needs to become part of who we are. People who know they don't need to be in control because God will always provide for them with fatherly care. Who don't hoard wealth for themselves, but steward it carefully for their sake and for the sake of others by giving generously. And people who will use all their intelligence and resources to leverage wealth for the good of others and to minimize their impact of injustice in their world. All this simply because of the simple truth that our wealth is not in what we own, but in that we are owned by the one who has true wealth. And who gives it willingly. So how does this, this new perspective, this true perspective, get embedded into our hearts? Well, the final verse of James here um, reads like a judgment, but on the second reading actually points us to salvation. James says, You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who did not oppose you. See, evil people representing sinful humanity, condemned and murdered God's innocent son. Jesus suffered because people clinging to their own illusions at all costs could not bear to hear his divine critique of their hearts. But unlike all other victims of control and power, Jesus went willingly so that as an act of so that an act of wickedness might become a work of salvation he went to the cross having said to his father if it is the lord's will and he knew that it was it was god's will to see his beloved son broken so that in his rising from the dead he might break the power of selfish, sinful illusions, so that we might be forgiven for them 
so that we might be free from them, so we might see through them. We have been given more grace than we could ever dream possible. And it's that grace that makes a life of generous justice possible. Because if God kept nothing back but gave his most beloved treasure, his own son, how could we not, out of love for him, return our treasures to him? And if Christ gave up control for our sakes, how could we not give up our own control and rest in him? If Christ would do such a thing for those who are guilty, what might we do on behalf of those who, while not wholly innocent, are certainly more innocent than us and who suffer more and are weighed under more than us? So let us make plans, but let's make them prayerfully. Enjoy our riches, yes, while always maximizing our sharing with others. Learn what our luxuries cost others and do what we can to minimize injustice. And always keep refixing our eyes on Jesus, who for our sakes became poor so that we might become spiritually rich, rich in all the ways that truly matter. I'm going to pray a prayer to finish, um, written by Tim Keller, and it's one he prays um, every lunchtime. And I think it really touches on some of our themes. Let me pray this prayer. O Lord God, thank you for sustaining our physical lives through food and shelter, for giving us new life through the gospel, for the assurance that our bad things will turn out for good and that our good things cannot be taken from us, and for the certainty of the best and perfect life which is yet to come. Now, give us a joyful sense of your presence and freedom from the sins of self-confidence, self-reliance and greed. Don't allow our affections to be tangled in inordinate and inappropriate desires for the things of this world, but let us set our hearts on things above, where Christ our life is seated at your right hand. In Jesus' name.